freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. This episode was recorded just before Election Day. Don't forget to rate, review, but most importantly, subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Welcome back to Under the Tree. That was the magnificent artist and freedom fighter Tom Morello getting us started. Tom's one of those generous souls and popular troubadours who always shows up wherever and whenever people are in motion, releasing their energies and imaginations, building a movement toward peace and justice. Here we are under the tree where we gather every week for our seminar on freedom. And regular listeners know that that title is a metaphor meant to signal that when the topic is liberation, the classroom can be a park or a house of worship, a storefront or the street, a people's assembly or a demonstration, anywhere we might come together to unlock our collective wisdom and pose the fundamental questions once more. Who are we? How did we get here? Where do we want to go? And what is to be done? Those questions transform our gathering together into a classroom without walls, the whole wide city or a small village at our school, this intentional community, an underground university, a fugitive space, an insurgent academy. We open each episode with a poem, our common practice and our ritual announcement that seminar is in session. It's a time of reflection, a moment of Zen. This is the poet Roquet Dalton, and the poem is Como Tu, or Like You. Like you, I love love, life, the sweet smell of things, the sky-blue landscape of January days, and my blood boils up, and I laugh through eyes that have known the buds of tears. I believe the world is beautiful, and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone and that my veins don't end in me, but in the unanimous blood of those who struggle for life, love, little things, landscape and bread, the poetry of everyone. That's Roque Dalton, like you. Our second regular feature is a free write, a time to enable surprising new winds to gather strength in our minds and our hearts, and then to unleash themselves and go wild. Here you can pause the podcast for just a few moments. Again, I'll remind you that you can pause the podcast for as long as you like. It's not going anywhere. So pause here if you like and write fiercely, no need for edits, in response to this prompt. Make a list of issues, not people, that you think should be put to a popular vote. That is, a list of 10 or more referendums that would push us toward an authentic participatory democracy. Power to the people. Start writing. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. 
There's no one I'd rather hear from in the middle of the current muddle than my friend and comrade Barbara Ransby. She holds the John D. MacArthur Endowed Chair at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where she's a distinguished professor of history, women and gender studies, and African-American studies, as well as the director of the Social Justice Institute, editor-in-chief of Souls, a critical journal of black politics, culture, and society. She's also the author of three acclaimed books. Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement, A Radical Democratic Vision, which has won several major awards. Eslanda, The Large and Unconventional Life of Mrs. Paul Robeson. And most recently, Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. Thanks for joining me under the tree, Barbara. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. It's a great time to talk. Great to see you. Uh, maybe we could start right there. A great time to talk uh, by noting that this precar- precarious moment we're living through, the crisis that seemed to be exploding in every direction, the looming referendum on the direction of the country in the last few years. How did we get here? <laughs> I know it's a small question. Yeah, that's a very big question. Um, well, you know, the question is, where are we as well? Uh, that's the corollary question. But I mean, exactly. you know, I mean, in some ways, and, uh, you know, we were just talking about the um, style section of the New York Times this week is uh, has Angela Davis in it, and she talks about the precarity of this moment and talks about, uh, you know, how racial capitalism essentially is indicted. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the crises that we're facing right now, it's a culmination of uh, a system that's not working for people, uh, it's not working for the planet, it's not working for climate, it's certainly not working for black people, it's not working for poor people. And we see a convergence of all that in the pandemic, which has disproportionately impacted uh, poor black and brown communities and uh, frontline essential workers. Workers who uh, include doctors and healthcare workers, but primarily include people who are just vulnerable and 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 don't have the luxury to work remotely and work from from home. And of course, the the second uh, pillar of the crisis is uh, the crisis of, of white nationalism and um, and racism and the the rise of these uh, armed white militia, the um, attacks by police on uh, black people and the, the murder of, of unarmed black people by police all over the country, which has sparked unprecedented uh, uprisings. You know, of course, race is at the crux of that, but it's also racial capitalism in that our communities are both racially targeted and economically uh, vulnerable. And then the third pillar of the crisis uh, is is a political crisis, a crisis of liberal or bourgeois democracy, as some of us would say, uh, which we see a, a complete uh, lurch toward authoritarianism on the part of this president and a lot of you know willing collaborators going right along with him and certainly not impeding him. But uh, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic that he will be defeated at the polls uh, in November, uh, in, in a week or so. And, uh, and then we have another phase of, of struggle uh, after that. And name that phase. It seems to me, you know, that people get so fired up about elections. But the day after, what, what comes then? And assuming you're right, that Trump is taken from office, what do we do then? What does the left do then? Right. So, you know, I mean, all of the organizations that I'm affiliated with right now, Movement for Black Lives, Rising Majority, a Working Families Party, uh, all these organizations have a vote plus strategy which is that uh, we're not really looking for a magnificent victory on November 3rd because the Democratic opposition is not 
who and what we would like for it to be. Uh, and so we're we're really looking for um, ongoing struggles against neoliberalism. Um, and I'm really nervous about the scenario in which uh, you see Biden move uh, much more rapidly toward the right uh, after the election as a way to appease um, conservative supporters who cross over and support him. Um, we saw that, you know, after the United Front work uh, in, in the mid 20th century against fascism, where the Cold War McCarthyism followed it. Uh, and we've seen it in, in lots of other situations. That doesn't mean we shouldn't vote on November 3rd. Doesn't mean we don't need to defeat Trump. Uh, in the short term, but it means we need to be extremely clear-eyed um, about the continued fight against neoliberalism uh, after November 3rd if Biden and Harris win. So they lurch to the center. I, I didn't say the center. Makes... I said the right. Okay, they lurch to the right. Um, and yeah, they're on the center, um, they're right center, but they lurch further to the right. And the progressive movement, the uprising, the Black Lives Matter movement, the environmental movement, our job is to continue to mobilize from the below. Is that is that what you're saying? And how do we do that? Well, people are organizing now, uh, and I think the organizing will continue. The electoral work is one part of the work. Uh, it is an important part of the work at this particular moment. Uh, but of course, you know, we have to be able to to politically uh, walk and chew gum at the same time, which is uh, planning short term and long term. Um, there is a piece of right now mock legislation called the Breathe Act, uh, which was developed by the policy table of the Movement for Black Lives, which has a very comprehensive uh, agenda for uh, defunding police and moving toward other forms of safety, which also means preventative measures that have an economic component. Like this is not just about the police. This is about a system that has uh, abandoned, uh, controlled, contained, punished uh, poor black and brown communities. And, and that is the, the sort of crux of the problem. So the Breathe Act is one that we'll be advancing after the election. Um, the Green New Deal, of course, represents a set of policy uh, components. But I think also, you know, you use the term grassroots organizing. I mean, that's always key, right? People going to the streets, holding marches and visuals and uh, civil disobedience and, and whatever else we call it, direct action, uh, as a way to demand not that we go back to the old normal, but that we uh, envision and fight for um, a better future. You know, you, you mentioned the, the um, Green New Deal that you mentioned three uh, epidemics, pandemic, uh, economic crisis, political crisis. But then you have to put the environmental crisis in there, too, don't you think? Absolutely. In terms of yeah. What's fundamental in terms of what we're facing, right. the existential crisis. Right. Absolutely. Um, and all, all four of them weave together. Do you think that implies that we need a, a new mass party? Do we need a party of the left? I think we do need a party of the left. Um, you know, there's various gestures in that direction, and uh, we'll see where we where we land. Uh, my good friend Mo Mitchell has been building the Working Families Party in a certain direction. In Illinois, we have the United Working Families. Uh, there's also this organization, Left Roots, which your friend Marta Harnica uh, influenced with her writings before she died. Um, so there's a lot of uh, left organizing going on. And of course, there's DSA, which I, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, which, which I have you know, publicly made criticisms of, but also have been in dialogue with uh, some of their caucuses, their Socialist Majority Caucus, their Afro-Socialist Caucus, 
uh, both of whom I think represent the left of DSA. So so they are they are in the mix with 70,000 members, um, you know, around the country. So I think there's more left organizing than we've seen in a while and, and possibilities for uh, for some kind of left party. But what would be the kind of ideological grounding for that party and what would be its strategy? That's that's the question up for debate. Well, of course, it would be fought out over a long time with a lot of people. But, you know, the left mobilizing is one thing I I have never seen in my lifetime. Uh, the nationalist, white nationalist right as well organized as they are now, nor with as much power from the top with Donald Trump, William Barr and so on. So I think we're headed towards um, I can't imagine what, but a, but a real clash between the forces unleashed by the environmental movement, the women's movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, and this white nationalism, which has never been more more mobilized. I mean, so how do you see that playing out? Well, I mean, that's in the mix, right? They've literally murdered people uh, in the street um, and uh, uh, seem to be organizing, seem to be uh, increasingly bold. We don't know what their numbers are uh, because, you know, I mean, I'm not usually the... <laughs> the glass half full uh, person. I'm usually worried about everything. Uh, And I am worried. I think we are in perilous times. But I think we also, we want to take them very, very seriously because a small group of them can do a lot of damage and have done a lot of damage, represents a very ugly, sinister, dangerous uh, part of of American politics. Um, At the same time, we've seen more white people go into the streets to demand, uh, to to, to advance anti-racist demands than every time, any time in history. I mean, this country that has been steeped in white supremacy at all levels, including a certain um, mild-mannered white supremacy, if you will, of people who, you know, kind of wallow in their privilege and don't don't, uh, lift a finger to oppose racism, but who would never use a racial epithet, right? So those folks, uh, and and that's been how this country has uh, continued as it has. Many of those people living in small towns all over the country with no black people said enough is enough, push back against the white supremacist agenda. So, I mean, I find hope in that, actually, um, that there's more of them than there are uh, people, uh, you know, driving around in pickup trucks with with guns and Confederate flags. So um, it is a serious threat. It is uh, being the, the, the few the. Flames are being fanned by this president who is uh, an unapologetic racist. And we have to take it seriously, but I think we also have to look at some of the countervailing um, developments as well. Yeah, I, I feel that very strongly. And I think that um, I, I wonder again and again, and I, I think this through myself all the time. How do you account for folks in the middle of Iowa or Nebraska or Wyoming coming out in Black Lives Matter demonstrations in small towns? How do you account for that at this particular moment? Why is that happening? Um Well, you know, every historical moment is unique. The contradictions are unique. Uh, We often try to predict and and fail to predict the exact balance of forces. But there has been uh, ongoing organizing around racism, around white supremacist ideas, you know, since this country began, really, but in, in a in a really sharp way, uh, since the end of what we you know what's often called the civil rights movement, since the uh, the mid nineteen sixties with the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, and, and some nod toward uh, desegregation. And I think there have been efforts, multiracial efforts, hard fought struggles 
political education, um, exposure of people to ideas they weren't exposed to before, uh, uh, increasingly blended families of various types where people, uh, you know, white people are forced to confront racism in ways that they didn't in a much more segregated and isolated period. So I think all those are factors. But I also think that when people are in the street um, chanting, you know, the name of George Floyd, they're also angry about a lot of other things. Um, and uh, and that rage is uh, funneled through the Black Lives Matter movement for black lives. So so it's a complex uh, uh, protest agenda. I think it's it's ra- anti-racism is a part of it, but it's not the only part of it. I often think of, you know, there's a scene in the the documentary Eyes on the Prize, the, the multi-part documentary Eyes on the Prize in which um, the, they, they show a clip from 1957 when two, which, in which two young white women in Little Rock, Arkansas are interviewed. And there's this vicious mob that has come out to uh, throw rocks and attack the Little Rock Nine, the young people who were, who were there to desegregate uh, Little Rock Central High School. And the reporter asked these two young women who look very conservative if we were just to read their appearance, right? He asked them, well, what do you think of all this? And they kind of look at the, the sneering, rock-throwing mob, and they look at these young people who are, you know, on the other side of the street who are waiting to go into Little Rock Central High School, and they say, well... You know, we haven't thought a lot about this issue before, which, of course, is their privilege. Uh, and they look at the mob and say, but we know that we're not with them. So I think there's a way in which the sharpening of the contradiction, the, the, the increasing ugliness uh, of, of white supremacy and, and white nationalism has forced white people who otherwise might stay on the sidelines, right, and be passive enablers of white supremacy has forced them to take a stand. So I think that that moment of George Floyd's murder broadcast around the world, the vicious callousness of it, uh, uh, the arrogant um, supremacist sentiment generated by it or exuded by that cop in that moment, uh, I think it really did force a lot of people to, to have a kind of moral reckoning. Mm. And of course, you you mentioned that there's a lot of organizing that's gone on since the great um, civil rights movement came to a kind of formal end in the mid late 60s. And that was true leading up to the civil rights movement. You know better than most that you've documented the kinds of organizing that went into the to to creating the ground in which when the spark happened in 1954, 1956, and so on, that there was already a lot of organizing. There's never been a time when there wasn't organizing. I'd like you to say a word because you played a role in so much of this um, about some of the organizing that went on leading up to Black Lives Matter. And I'm thinking of the Black Radical Congress. I'm thinking of the of the Anita Hill moment, as well as some of the other formations, maybe Occupy. But, but tell us how you see the organizing on the ground creating a narrative that led to this moment? Yeah, well, I mean, you've sort of set it up. I mean, some of the things I was involved in, of course, um, the Black Radical Congress in 1998, which was a coming together of um, a, a lot of different sectors of the black left. And sometimes we talk about the left in colorblind terms. And, and when people do that, they're talking about the primarily white left. And there has been always a black left, uh, black people who are critical of capitalism and white supremacy and see those as related and what we call racial capitalism, uh, borrowing from Cedric Robinson. So the Black Radical Congress was that. For many of us who are feminists, the Black Radical Congress was also a response, 
a critical response to the Million Man March and to a kind of patriarchal um, message or view of black liberation that we rejected. Uh, and, and so we were including black feminism in that, including people like Barbara Smith and Angela Davis and, and others um, in, in the Black Radical Congress. The African-American women in defense of ourselves was, of course, around the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings, opposition to Clarence Thomas's appointment to the Supreme Court, and in support of Anita Hill speaking out about sexual harassment. Um, I think, you know, both the BRC and African-American women in defense of ourselves, as well as project that I worked on called Ella's Daughters, all of those, um, and those are just the ones that I, you know, personally were involved in. All of those bridged various movements and various uh, sectors, and I think that kind of broad-based organizing, not around a single issue, but uh, bringing in people who've done work around gender organizing, bringing in people who've uh, been working in the legal arena, bringing in people who were in labor, um, that also sets sets the stage for this moment when we have uh, people who work in normally in silos, but who have relationships and a history and points of connection uh, with people in other silos, right? So when there's a mass action, uh, we're poised to um, to work together or to, at least to act together um, in moments of crisis. I think there's also other organizations and other moments. I mean, you mentioned Occupy Wall Street. I mean, Occupy Wall Street in 2011 was a critical moment of um, confrontation, of mobilization. Uh, there were weaknesses to that movement, clearly. I think the racial justice component was not uh, in the forefront enough, but it was a critical galvanizing uh, moment and a moment of raising consciousness. And so in terms of the precursors to this moment, that's one of them. The abolitionist movement that um, Ruthie Gilmore and Beth Ritchie and um, you know, Bernadine Dorn's work around uh, juvenile justice and, and, and prison justice work. I mean, all of this also sets the stage for this moment that has been massive political education, uh, confronting people's uh, staid notions about what being safe means, about what justice means. Um, I think all of that has been in the air and has touched real people in many, many different places. And because of technology and media technology, and social media. It's touched people in places where we might not normally uh, or typically go, right? So people in Idaho or North Dakota or, um, you know, small town in, in Maine, you know, maybe listening to a podcast by Ruthie Gilmore or Mariam Cabo or, you know, whoever, um, and, and absorbing that. So I think the uh, technology, while, you know, there's ways in which it, it continues to uh, undermine and surveil our movements has also been uh, a tool for movement organizing. You know, it's interesting, all of those movements, as they kind of twist in and out and wind together, they do create the possibility of having a counter narrative to the dominant narrative. And so when when the George Floyd moment happened and all the uprisings from that, suddenly we're having conversations about reparations, about abolition, conversations that were taking place you know, in the far left, but not in the mainstream. I find that extraordinary. And I hope people take one lesson I hope people take from that is organizing matters. And when you're organizing, you're always changing the narrative and connecting the issues. And and I think that's what the, the projects you mentioned and many others were able to do in the, in the years leading up to this. Maybe you'd say a word, Barbara, about 
racial capitalism. We use the word, we use it between us. But I know it has, um, I think, a very deep meaning. And and I think sometimes when it gets um, used in some context, people don't really know um, what's being referred to. You mentioned Cedric Robinson, but I think maybe you could explain racial capitalism for our listeners. Sure. Um, so we use the term racial capitalism, and I, and I want to make the distinction that my friend Robin Kelly always insists that we do, uh, which is there's not a capitalism that's not racist, right, uh, or racial. So capitalism is uh, has been a racial project from the very beginning, and that's what Cedric uh, Robinson reminds us of. Uh, it, it is... It is uh, it points to the, the reality that modern capitalism developed as a result of racialized ideologies that helped to justify the pillage, plunder, enslavement, and capital accumulation uh, that occurred, that, that is very foundational uh, to Western capitalism, right? Without colonialism, which of course was justified by, you know, you know, the, the Kipling poem suggests that the white man's burden, right? That gave uh, a sort of very thinly veiled moral cover to uh, conquering and stealing the lands of people all over the world, and ultimately stealing the bodies. Uh, of many of our ancestors from Africa. So, um, so white supremacist ideas, racist ideas, you know, have been part of the lifeblood of capitalism. The genocide and theft of indigenous land in this country, of course, is a critical component of that. These are not blemishes. These are not side questions. These are integral to understanding the emergence of capitalism in this country. And I think what people on the left also need to understand is the emergence of class consciousness, the emergence of a white working class was in direct relationship to the existence of an of a black enslaved working class right so so enslaved people were workers they were workers in a different category and workers of a different sort unpaid workers tortured brutalized uh, and and captured uh, workers but workers nonetheless and so the emergence of class structure in this country is a racialized project as well as an economic uh, project of capitalism so so saying racial capitalism is to bring all of those characteristics of capitalism to the fore um, as we look toward a post-capitalist world. But perhaps there's another dimension, which is, you know, you could argue that since capitalism is always racist, racial capitalism, then ending capitalism will end racism. But I don't believe that. I don't think you believe that. Well, ending racial capitalism will end racism. Well, of course, right, exactly. That's why it might be worth <laughs> right. making that very explicit. Right, right, right. right. I mean, and that's, that's part of the point. I think, you know, in, in places like Cuba, for example, which made enormous strides, I think uh, many people, you know, at the outset of the Cuban Revolution felt that uh, if, they, if they took care of the economic aspects of capitalism, that racism would sort of wither away. And of course, we see, again, while enormous strides have been made, uh, many people living in Cuba right now supporting the revolution would argue that racism hasn't, uh, hasn't withered away, hasn't disappeared. Um, but I don't think it has a life of its own that's existing out there independent of the underpinnings of capitalism. So yes, we have to, in building a movement that transforms society, we have to identify you know, what it is we want to transform. And white supremacy is part of that thing that we want to transform. Uh, and if we haven't Absolutely. done that, uh, we have not done our work, we have not transformed, um, and we will still have some of the residuals uh, of a racial, racial capitalist regime. 
I've taken a lot of your time. I'd like you to speak to one more thing, if you would, which is your latest book is called Making All Black Lives Matter, which I have recommended to everyone I know and I've taught in classes. The subtitle is Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century. Tell us a word about that subtitle. Yeah. So one of the things that I uh, describe in the book, I won't say argue because I don't think it's an argument. It's just a fact, uh, is that this uh, iteration of the black freedom movement has embraced a holistic, radical black feminist uh, praxis, which is to say um, uh, it has been inclusive of all sectors of the black community. It has focused on police violence and police violence targeting some of the most marginal members of our community. So it's it's rejected and jettisoned that idea of the politics of respectability. Um, and, and that's been an enormous step forward. So reimagining uh, freedom in the 21st century means not simply, you know, the, 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 the old Marxist mandate of, of seizing state power or uh, not simply uh, uh, an economic determinist notion of what will free us and certainly not simply a narrow identity uh, based notion of what will free us, but being radically inclusive, being boldly imaginative uh, and saying we have to, in some ways, rethink everything. Um, and schools, which has, of course, been part of your life's work, um, health care, policing, you know, abandoning this notion of policing that has um, destroyed so many lives and prisons that have destroyed so many lives. Um, And giving people the resources that they need is the bedrock of those solutions. Uh, But also transforming ourselves in in the process is what we have to be about. And you're right, you know, you said earlier, this is a protracted process. It's not an overnight deal. I think when I was 18 or 19, I thought revolution was an event. Uh, You know, we would have one. And after that, things would be better. Uh, But of course, it's more complicated and protracted. uh, And it's a process and not an event. Uh, But glad to be alive and still part of the process. And I couldn't be happier to be arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with you going over the next barricade. Thanks so much for joining me, Barbara. Thanks, Bill. And thanks for all you're doing. Founded on war and conquest, land theft and forced removal, ethnic cleansing and genocide, kidnapping, and a complex system of generational slavery based on African ancestry, the U.S. is hardly innocent in spite of the noisy protestations of the white nationalists. None of the conquerors ever stopped and thought, hmm, maybe indigenous folks or enslaved workers or women should have a say in these manners. That's ridiculous. It's a settler colonial racial capitalist system, and the founding documents are crystal clear. Power will be exercised by and for the few. The Constitution did not establish voting rights. In fact, voter suppression is not new. It's as American as cherry pie. And yet, in spite of our shambling, jerry-rigged, localized non-system of voting, the struggle for the right to vote is steady and ongoing. Let's move on to our segment, Reports from the Front Row, pages from one middle schooler's notebook, and take a look at voting with our dynamic 12-year-old reporter, Light Eilee. She's a writer and an artist, a critical observer, and a mini-ethnographer. 
Hi, Lighty. Good to have you back under the tree. Hi, Bill. Glad to be here. I am. Okay, thank you. Um, listen, we're just days away from uh, a very consequential national election. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the 12 year old middle school view of what's happening. So, have you been following the election at all? More than I want to, yeah. What, what do you mean more than you want to? I think that's true of most of my friends. What do you mean? I mean, I've learned stuff I would never have wanted to know, but I think it's important that I know that stuff. For example? Um, well, I, I, I know exactly like who the candidates are. I've watched both of the debates. I, um, you watched the debates. I watched the debates, both of them. I got a headache during both of them. So I left. I, I mean, I was scared out of my mind during both of them. Really? Why? Well, it's these two grown men bickering, like they're like drunk uncles at a family reunion. Like, I mean, at the presidential election, like it scared me. It's scary. Good point. Um, they both were acting a little bit nuts. Um, yeah, it was it was hard to watch. But so you've seen a lot and you are aware of what's going on. Yeah. If you were um, to be elected president, you yourself, or if you were to advise uh, the new president, what would be, say, the the first three things you'd want them to do or that you would do? What are the first three things that you think a president should do in the next term? Um, I don't know what Trump did to Obamacare, but whatever he did, I would rein I would reinstate it. I would undo whatever he did. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would try to make guns illegal. Okay. And I would uh, probably, I would fund the public schools. Okay. How old should a person be before they can vote in a national election? Well, of course, a lot of kids say, say like, they should be five and then they should get to vote. I mean, I don't agree with that. I don't think that it should be lowered too much, but I could, I could probably vote. Like, I... I'm 13 and I know I'm, I'm very informed. Like I know what's happening in the government and I know what we need to do. So I could probably do it, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean it should be. I do think it should be lowered, but not as low as my age. You're not yet 13. So you're kind of expanding your age. I like the way you did that. You kind of finessed that you pretended you were 13. You're 12, aren't you? I mean, 13 sounds better than 12, I guess. So, (laughs) okay. Um, so you think it should be lowered when I was young, the voting age was 21. It was lowered to 18. And the argument was you could be drafted into the army at 18, but you can't vote for war or peace. And that became a very compelling argument. But why 18 and not 17? You can join the army when you're 17. Why shouldn't 17 be the voting age or 16? You can drive a car when you're 16. Why couldn't you vote when you're 16? I don't know. We actually talked about this exact issue. We had um, kind of a seminar type of thing in fourth grade. I never really understood the age restrictions for these different things. I, I feel like voting is not not harder than driving a car. And yet you have to be way older, not way older, but you have to be older to do to vote. 
you know, you implied a criteria when you said um, uh, that you're informed and that make, makes that's a criteria for voting. But I'm not sure that a heck of a lot of adults who vote are informed. I mean, I'm not sure that's uh, I, I'll bet you're more informed than a hell of a lot of the electorate. And um, so I'm not sure the argument against kids voting in, in a sense, I wonder, wouldn't it make sense to say a kid should vote when that kid says I'm ready to vote? I mean, in some cases it would, but I know a lot of kids who know nothing about that kind of thing. And yet if they were presented with the option to vote, they'd be like, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. But I know a lot of adults who don't know a thing about the issues. That's also accurate. That's also a problem. Right. So, so I wonder, it's like, it's like dating. Should be, should there be an age when human beings are allowed to date or should the age be when kids feel that they're ready to date, they can date. A lot of my friends have parents who say they're not allowed to, like, they're not allowed to date. And that makes me feel weird. Like, it makes me feel like they're not in control of their life. And they're, like, I think it makes them feel bad, too. You know, I think voting and a lot of other things have to do with whether you're considered a full human being, a full citizen. And I think of you at the age of 12 as a full citizen. So I think you should have a lot more agency than either the law or kind of social norms grant you. Yeah, and I, I, I know that people say, well, you shouldn't let kids vote because they'll just vote the same, the same way that their parents do. But I, I don't find it fair that I have ideas. Like I, I'm a citizen of the United States and I have no voice in the government. I have literally nothing. My my parents and my family have to do it for me, which is, you know, like nice, but like, I don't feel like it's fair. All right. I, I'm going to go on a campaign when this election is done to get 12 year olds to vote. And uh, it's going to be my issue. Um, but let's check in with each other after the election and see if we can finally sleep through the night. Okay. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Before we say goodbye for today, I'd like to have a homework assignment out there. Think about the issues that animate your efforts, the issues you're organizing or agitating around, studying and intending to press forward on as we work to build an unstoppable movement for justice and freedom. Now think about the next administration and ask yourself, who are the activists and organizers and advocates who, if selected, would constitute a presidential cabinet that looked to a future fit for all? For example, I mentioned a few episodes back that Kevin Kumashiro would be an excellent Secretary of Education. He fully supports public education as a human right. He stands for a liberatory education for all. And he knows that the people with the problems are also the people with the solutions. So, okay, make your own cabinet. Attorney General, Labor, State, Agriculture, commerce, treasury, housing, transportation, energy, environment, health and human services, interior, and so on. I've got my list, and I'm happy to revise, so send me yours. Thanks to friends and comrades from the brilliant podcast Ergo, Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, producers and mentors. 
and to Malika Lean, valued and irreplaceable comrade in arms. Our music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. Thanks for being here. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.